have been very excited about this week is that it's finally December, everyone. And that means in my books, it's officially acceptable to start getting excited about Christmas. I have been restraining from watching trashy Christmas Netflix movies for the entirety of November. But December is here, so now it's acceptable. Um, With December, we are going to be talking about a little bit of the nativity story this morning. Um, And I wondered how many of you, hands up, have ever been in a nativity play? Hands up. Wow, surprisingly not that many people. Okay, and how many of you have been to watch a nativity play? Parents, I see you. More hands went up for that question. And how many of you got to play Mary or Joseph in your nativity play? A few. Congratulations. And how many of you, like me, remain slightly bitter about the fact that you didn't get to play Mary or Joseph? Yeah, I see you. I was in reception, desperate to play the role of Mary. Didn't get it. Who did? My best friend. It was like salt in the wound. I'm still holding on to that, clearly. Um, So a lot of us are familiar with the nativity story, aren't we? We kind of hear it year in, year out. Um, But I think that sometimes we become so familiar with the story that we kind of stop paying attention to it. We stop paying attention to the details because we just think oh, I know that story, like, don't need to pay attention anymore, which I've noticed is a thing, because this week I was looking at um, some results of a survey that the History Channel did. This is how I spend my spare time. Um, The History Channel did a survey of the British public, well, 2,000 of them, um, about how much they knew about Jesus and the nativity story. And of those 2,000 adults, they found that one in 20 couldn't name Mary and Joseph as the parents of Jesus. Um, It also showed that 7% of the public think Christmas trees are in the Bible. And that number doubles among 18 to 35-year-olds. So we're really doing a good job. And then finally, this is in a different survey, 40% of British people believe that the first visitor to Jesus was Santa. Yes, Santa Claus. I won't lie to you, that final statistic came from a Daily Mail article, so don't hold me accountable for its reliability. But I think it happily proves my point that we kind of stop paying attention when we get over familiar with something, right? So today, we're going to be looking at Luke 1, 26 to 38, which tells the story of the angel coming to Mary to tell her that she's going to have a son, and it will be the son of God. Um, And I think... That sometimes, because we're so familiar with this story, we stop paying attention and we don't realize the significance that it holds, not just as an individual story or even as part of the nativity story, but actually as part of the greater narrative of God's story of salvation. So this morning, what we're going to do is look through the passage pretty much line by line, and we're going to zoom in on those details that we can sometimes miss, and we're going to look at the significance of this moment in the salvation story. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open them. I'm going to read from Luke 1, 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 
but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Lord Jesus, we just thank you. Um, for this story. We thank you for this opportunity to look more at it. And I just pray right now that you will come, Holy Spirit, and soften our hearts to hear what you would speak to us this morning, that we would receive from you, that we would hear from you, and that our lives would be changed as a result. Amen. Okay, so what's going on in this story? The answer is a lot. I'm not going to lie. As I was prepping and working my way through the passage, I got pretty lost. There's so much good stuff, but I got kind of lost as I was prepping. So to help us as we move through the passage, I have broken it down into four sections of kind of what's happening here and what the angel is doing. So firstly, the angel gives an affirmation. Secondly, he gives a proclamation. Then he gives an explanation. And then finally, he gives an invitation see what I did there. Um, And within the invitation, we'll also look at how Mary responds um, so beautifully. But before we jump into those four points, I just want to quickly look at how Luke kind of introduces the story. Um, I think often we can kind of breeze over the introduction because we think it's not important, but it is. It's there for a reason. Um, About 10 years ago, I was in Canada, um, and I was on a guided tour And the tour guide told us this story about how, you know how countries have like oil reserves just in case, you know, they need it. He told us that in Canada, they have this, but for maple syrup. They have maple syrup reserves just in case, like saving it for a rainy day. And he said that one of the biggest scandals they'd had was that somebody had stolen tons of the maple syrup preserve and that everyone was like oh my goodness what are we gonna do the maple syrup's all gone I loved this story I thought it was amazing for years after I came back from this holiday I told people the story of the maple syrup heist and my excitement much to my dismay was met by complete disbelief people just didn't believe me they were like Emma, he was definitely pulling your leg. That story is not true. And I was like, no, I promise it's true. Like, why would he have made it up? And they would ask me for more details. They would say, well, when did it happen? Who did it? How long ago was it? What was the result? Like, how did he get punished? 
These were answers I did not have because I failed to pay attention to the details when I first heard the story. And so people just didn't believe me because I was lacking in details. And over the years, I stopped believing the story as well because I was like, this actually does sound a bit fake. There's not enough details. And that's because details add credibility to a story, right? Um, And Luke, who authored this account of Jesus' life, he knows that. He knows that um, details add credibility to a story. So Luke was a doctor and a historian and a scholar of the Old Testament. And he knows how you make a baby, right? And so he knows that what he's about to say is going to sound wild and maybe even unbelievable to some people. And so right at the offset, we see him give a location, a time frame, names of the people involved. All of these things that we find in verses 26 and 27 are details which kind of add to the credibility of what Luke is saying. It's kind of him saying to us, I know what you're about to read will seem unbelievable, but believe me, it's true. He's done his research, he's given us details, and in doing so, he adds credibility to the account. Okay. So let's go to verse 28, where the angel gives an affirmation. The angel appears to Mary and says, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. That seems like a pretty nice greeting, right? I'd be pretty pleased with that. But Mary, in verse 29, is genuinely afraid. She's like, what could this mean? What is this angel saying? Why is he here? What is he saying? And to be fair, you'd probably be pretty freaked out if an angel just showed up in your living room, right? So Mary's response is probably justified. She seems afraid. She doesn't know what's going on. And the angel, if we look in verse 30, immediately seeks to put her at ease. He says, do not fear, Mary, for you have found favor with God. The angel is affirming Mary to try and give her peace, to put her at ease. But it's really important that we pay attention to how he's affirming her because he hasn't come in and said, Mary, you are great and you've done some really good things. So as a reward, here you go. That's not what is happening. But actually, the word he uses is favor. And the Greek word used is charis. I'm probably saying that wrong, but I'll say it confidently. Um, And this word often in scripture is used to mean grace. In fact, 130 times in scripture, this Greek word is used to mean grace. And so the angel is putting Mary at ease, but not by affirming anything she's done or who she is, but rather in affirming what God is going to do. Because what the angel is about to say has nothing to do with Mary. It's not because she's one of the elite. It's not because she's done something wonderful. It has nothing to do with what she's done, but rather it is a proof of God's grace. And so right from the offset, the angel is pointing Mary's eyes to a gracious God. So the angel has offered Mary some affirmation, and now he moves on to giving his proclamation in verses 31 to 33. And he says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, 
and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I don't know how many of you have ever seen Ratatouille. Hands up, who's seen Ratatouille? Excellent news, this is going to work. In Ratatouille, it's one of my favorite movies. Um, I never thought I'd get to use it in a preach, so I'm pretty buzzing. Um, In Ratatouille, right, there is a restaurant critic. He's really horrible. He gives very bad reviews. Nobody likes him. He seems pretty bitter about life in general. And at the end of the movie, this restaurant critic comes to the restaurant where everybody is working, right? And they're like, oh my goodness, what are we going to cook for him? And Remy the Rat, who was the head chef at the time, if you've not seen Ratatouille, I'm sorry this is going to seem confusing, he pulls out an old recipe card and says, we're going to make him Ratatouille. And all the chefs are like, no, we can't make him Ratatouille, that's a peasant's dish. They make him Ratatouille. It goes to the critic kind of taking a bite of the Ratatouille and his face turns from like stony cold to a face of absolute delight. And you're like, why is this guy enjoying the Ratatouille so much? And then they show us a flashback to the restaurant critic's childhood, right? And he's come home from school, he's a little kid, he's come home from school really upset. And his mum makes him a bowl of ratatouille, and he eats it, and it just cheers him up. It makes him feel so happy. And then we come back to the present moment, and suddenly something switches, and we understand why this guy is understanding the ratatouille so much, because we know something of his history. We know something that's happened before that has influenced the present tense. And I think as we look at the proclamation that the angel makes... It's really important for us to look at the history that's led up to this point because we won't understand the significance of what the angel is saying if we don't know something of the history of the lead up to this moment. So I want to take you back all the way to the beginning, to the garden. Um, In Genesis, after Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree and God is kind of casting them out of the garden, God promises a saviour who will crush the serpent and the saviour will be born of a woman. Now, a few verses later, when Eve then gives birth to Cain, she says, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Now, Eve's got ringing in her ears, right, that God said, a saviour will be born of the woman. And so she gives birth to this boy and... We could, that could lead us to the thought, right, that Eve gives birth to Cain and thinks, oh great, the Savior's here. Like the Lord promised a Savior and he's here. But we know, don't we, that definitely was not the case. Cain would go on to kill his brother. He was not the Savior that God had promised. But this promise would remain prominent in the minds of Hebrew women throughout every generation. For centuries, Hebrew women giving birth to a boy would have thought, is this him? Could this be the one? Could this be the savior that we have been longing for? Is this him? And then we get to this story of Mary centuries later, and the angel comes before a woman who isn't married, isn't pregnant, she's a virgin, And he makes this proclamation that she will give birth to the Son of God. 
He comes to say, for centuries you've been asking the question, is this him, is this him, when is the Savior coming? And he says, now is the time. The Savior that you have been waiting for is coming, and he's coming now. Now, after this big proclamation, Mary, understandably, has some questions, right, in verse 34. She, like Luke, knows how you make a baby, and she's like, sorry, angel, hang on a second. How is this going to work? How are you going to make this happen? I'm a virgin. Um, And as we move into verse 35, we see the angel giving Mary an explanation. The angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, the angel's explanation actually doesn't really present us with any brand new information. Because if we look at what he's saying we'll see that the angel is drawing upon promises and prophecies that we see in the Old Testament. That's why it's so important for us to look at the history and the lead up, because everything the angel is saying is to declare that the promises that have been made will be fulfilled. So we've already talked about how when Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden, it says that the Savior will be born of a woman. So, in the first place, there isn't mention of a man, right? It says the Savior will be born of a woman. So, I guess you could take from that maybe some hints of a virgin birth, right? But if you need some more, you know, hard proof, I work in the legal sector, we base things on evidence, then turn to Isaiah 7.14 that says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. The virgin birth is clearly important, right? If God's spoken to Isaiah, if it's been talked about as part of the story, it should lead us to ask why the virgin birth is so significant. Because the virgin birth, right, isn't just God trying to show off. He's not trying to do it for dramatic effect because, you know, he could do it a different way, but this is more impressive. If that was what he was trying to do, he really spoiled it by telling Isaiah because, you know, kind of steals the excitement of the moment. That's not what God is trying to do. Jesus was to come in flesh, fully human, to be born of a woman but the virgin birth is fundamental for God's plan for salvation. If we look at Romans 5, 12 to 15, it says that through Adam, sin entered the world and therefore brought death. And so every person born of Adam inherits this sinfulness. And so if the savior that had been promised was going to take on our sin, to face the pain of death on our behalf, he had to be sinless, right? Otherwise, he was simply suffering the consequences of his own sins. The savior had to be sinless, and this wasn't possible if he was born of man, because one born of man is born of Adam and is therefore born into sin. The NIV commentary on this passage explains this really helpfully. It says, why is the virgin birth important to the Christian faith? 
Jesus was born without the sin that entered the world through Adam. He was born holy, just as Adam was created sinless. In contrast to Adam, who disobeyed God, Jesus obeyed God and was thus able to face sin's consequences in our place and make us acceptable to God. Because Jesus was born of a woman, he was a human being, but as the son of God, Jesus was born without any trace of human sin. And we see this, don't we, in verse 35. The angel explains that the child will be conceived by the spirit and therefore the child born will be called holy, the son of God. Fully human, fully God. I think we can often fall into this misconception, right? That everything was kind of going wrong and all God's other plans had sort of failed. So as a last ditch attempt, God decides to send Jesus. But that's not at all what happened because we can see as we've looked, we've only scratched the surface, but as you look through Old Testament scripture, we can see that this was always the plan, that Jesus was to come to be born of a virgin, to live a life, to take on our sin on the cross and to make a way for us to be in relationship with him. God's heart was always to save his people and draw them to himself. Athanasius, who's one of the um, church fathers, said that the purpose of the incarnation, the purpose of Jesus coming, was to reorient God's people to himself, to turn their attention back to him, that they would see him clearly again. He is Emmanuel, God with us. That's how intent God was on saving us, that he sent Jesus. We see it as we look through scripture and we see it as it culminates in this moment as the angel announces that the promise is to be fulfilled. It feels like the angel clearly knows that this announcement might land as slightly far-fetched of an idea, right? And so he moves on to offer some final words of encouragement um, and in doing so, invites Mary to believe and obey. He presents an invitation. We can see in other stories in scripture that um, the response to the announcement of a miracle baby is not always met with full and total belief, right? Um, If you look at Sarah in Genesis 18, when she hears that despite being far beyond childbearing age, that she's gonna have a child, she laughs. She almost scoffs at the idea that that could be possible. And so it's almost as if the angel has preempted that, you know, this could sound impossible. So he kind of backs up what he's saying by demonstrating to Mary that the impossible has already been made possible in Elizabeth. If you look at um, verse 35, 36, um, it talks about the fact that Elizabeth, who was once barren, is now six months pregnant because God has made a way. Because God has made that which seemed impossible, possible. The angel says it in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. The angel is inviting Mary in this moment to put her faith and trust in a God who has made a promise since the very beginning to save his people and has moved ever since to make a way for Jesus to come incarnate in the flesh that he would save his people. 
that we would be able to come into relationship with him, that we would be able to find life in its fullness. This kind of story, this kind of God invites obedience. And that's exactly what happens next. We need to stop and dwell on Mary's response in verse 38 because there is so much for us to learn from how Mary responds to the angel. I honestly think that if I read the first bit of the story, like if I read the announcement, if the next bit was, Mary was super freaked out and she ran away and that was that, you'd kind of be like, hmm, yeah, fair enough. But that is not what happens. We see it in verse 38. She says, um, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I think this comes in stark contrast, doesn't it? Because since Adam and Eve ate from the tree, throughout generation after generation, God keeps working to return his people to himself because they keep turning away. They might be um, acknowledging worship of him with their mouths or even with their actions, but the cry of their hearts has kept returning to the idea of, Lord, let it be to me unto my will, what I want. And here, so beautifully, we see complete contrast to that in Mary saying, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your will. According to your will, God. For some context, the societal odds would not have been in Mary's favor, right? She is poor, she's unmarried, and she's a woman, which in the society of that day, you know, The odds are not in her favor, but being an unmarried pregnant woman at this time would have meant being ridiculed and called a liar at best, being shunned by her family, rejected by Joseph, and she could have even been killed. Obedience would come at a cost for Mary. And yet without knowing what would come next or what was going to happen to her, Mary says, let all you have said come to pass. Mary demonstrates this incredibly faithful obedience in the face of uncertainty that, I don't know about you, but presents me with a really big challenge in my life. Steve Foster puts it really beautifully. He says, Mary was young and vulnerable and taking on huge risks to herself. She chose obedience. Mary took the risk of punishment of death to bear the one who would conquer death. Mary took the risk of a life of shame to bear the one who would take all our shame away. Mary took the risk of wrecking her relationships with everyone she held dear in order that she might bear the one who would restore our relationships with the one who first loved us. Seeing it all, the risk, the cost, she said, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. We are not accustomed to this kind of obedience in our lives, right? We're not used to it. How often do we weigh up the cost and either delay obedience or decide against it altogether? 
So often we want to be part of God's plans on our own terms, right? We ask that he would use us, but we're only willing for this to be the case if it fits in with how we would like our lives to look. As I thought about how quickly Mary responds with obedience in the face of such significant cost, I found myself asking, how ready am I to do that? And I found that the answer I would like to give is not yet the reality of my life. So often, we are so focused on ourselves and our own lives that obedience to anyone else apart from ourselves seems virtually impossible. We only want to be part of his plans so long as they make our lives seem a little bit better. The reality is that obedience often does come at a cost because at the time, obedience will always feel like a risk because it requires giving up control. I am a massive control freak. I really struggle with not knowing what's going on. I want to control every little decision. I want a five-year plan, a 10-year plan. I want to know exactly what is going on. And so one of the things I have to go to God about again and again is giving up control to him and saying, have your way. It always feels risky giving up control. But the greater risk is found in disobedience. It might feel like life and freedom to be in control of all your own decisions, to choose your own ways. But the reality is that when we walk in our own ways and disobey what God is leading us into, it only leads to death. And yet when we choose obedience, when we choose to follow him, to obey where he's calling us, even when it feels uncertain, we find life in abundance and freedom in its fullness. And Mary knew this. Mary was able to show this incredibly faithful obedience because her eyes were not fixed on herself, her plans, her life. Look what she says in verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. Mary's eyes are fixed on a much bigger story than the one she had in mind for her own life. Mary's obedience is not blind. Her eyes are set on the God who has promised since the beginning that he would draw his people to himself and send a savior who would conquer death and reign victorious forever. Look at verse 32 again. It says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary had her eyes fixed on God and his promises. A faithful God, a kind God, a loving and gracious God who was intent on saving his people. And this led Mary to the most incredible obedience because she knew that the life found in the savior that was coming would be far greater than any version of the life she could have imagined for herself. So what will we do? How will we respond now that the Savior is here? How will we respond? He asks us to lay down our lives and to trust him 
and we can because he is faithful, he is good, he fulfills his promises. We can trust him, we can obey him, we can give our lives to him. And so Lord, let this be the cry of our hearts and our response every time. Would we agree with Mary and say, behold, we are servants of the Lord. Let it be to us according to your word. Amen.